0: Evening Church. Um, So the scripture today is going to come from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 12 and then also 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 8 to 11. So as it reads, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits us above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling This is the word of God.
1: Thank you, Candace, and thank you to Piwa, that uh, testimony was awesome, wasn't it? That could just be our sermon for tonight. Well, last week, um, Stephen continued our series on holiness, and he was considering the irresistible goodness of Jesus Christ, and if you hadn't had a chance to hear that, I really recommend that you listen to it. But we know that our culture often struggles with words like holiness and morality. It's not uncommon, is it, for people in the media to be heard saying, my morality is my business. Your morality, your holiness, limits my freedom. I don't really want to know anything about your rules and your regulations. And I'm sure we'll agree that it's true, the call to follow rules and regulations is an unattractive appeal to living a life of virtue. It was hardly this that enchanted Peter and the other disciples. No, they were captivated by a person and by the joy of that relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what is firing up Peter in this letter written later in his life. He's showing that as goodness grips us, grips our imagination, it can change how we act. And our goodness can then influence friends and colleagues. It can even evangelize the world. Isn't this true of certain people who've had an impact on each one of us? Haven't we all experienced a couple of people in our lives who've radiated a goodness that has touched us? I mean, I think of uh, Jeff, the accountant who ran my first Alpha Group. And uh, Jeff worked in Soho uh, in London, uh, where I also work, not one of the most salubrious areas, but uh, we both worked there. And while our Alpha Group was running, Jeff one day invited me to lunch in this amazing restaurant, and we had a slap-up meal at his expense. And that testimony of his generosity, his goodness, it, it put a whole new human face on Jeff to me, and it made my heart soft and more receptive to the gospel. Well, turning to this passage, what we first see here is that Peter says our holiness is positional. Peter says that at salvation we are made holy, that something has been done to us and in us and for us. Once you were not, he says, but now you are. Once you had not received, but now you have received. God has made saints of us. God has made holy people of us. And that word saints, it's never used in the Old Testament, never used of men and women, but it is used 67 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it the whole time, writing to the people in the churches that he's addressing. Even the misbehaving rabble in the Corinthian church, he calls them, he calls us saints. And our sainthood, our goodness, isn't predicated on our performance, it's positional in God's eyes. So Paul says of God in Ephesians 1-4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what we are. We are holy and blameless in his sight. There's a lovely children's book, Millions, by Frank Cottrell Boyce. And in it, there's a nine-year-old boy called Damien. Damien has just lost his mum, she's died. And Damien's obsession in life, his drive, is to become a saint. He wants to be entirely good. And he's kind of trying to research how he should do this. And uh, he, he says this, that there's no patron saint, he's just found out, of estate agents, because no estate agent has ever become a saint have been saints who were sailors, blacksmiths, soldiers, bakers, teachers, housewives, swineherds, kings, even. But in the whole of history, not one estate agent ever became a saint. It makes you think. But if you follow Jesus Christ, you are a saint, even if you're an estate agent. That's a joke. When you accept Jesus as Lord, you know new birth and you become a saint and you stay a saint. But of course, Damon is thinking here about those who live out their saintliness. Because our holiness isn't just positional. In this passage, we also see it's personal. It's lived out by each one of us. It happens to be lived out in a granular way. As well as being a saint, made one by God, we need to become a saint. We need to live in to our goodness. The French novelist Léon Blois said, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. And it's a tragedy because saintliness, goodness, holiness are the very things that we are created for. They're the stunning ideal of who we are each made to be. We live in a world of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that's not where our heart is intended to dwell. The Swiss theologian von Balthasar in the mid-20th century said, our heart should rest in the good, the true, and the beautiful. He said in those three places, we will meet God. So beauty draws us to God. We've just had anointed worship. Amazing music and lyrics. That beauty draws us to God. Great Christian artwork, great Christian literature. The skies of creation, so many things. Truth draws us to God. The authoritative word of God proclaims through the scripture and the person of the Holy Spirit always pointing us to our Savior Jesus Christ. And then the good draws us to God. In the contagious example of People living beautiful lives, good lives, noble sacrificial lives, the the Bonhoeffers of the world, the Mother Teresa's of the world, the uh, elders in our own community here who show kindness to so many people and act as pillars in this community. So how do we live out our goodness? That's what Peter's considering. How do we cash in the blank check of holiness that God has written for each one of us. Well, we do do things. We're not just holy in our being, we do things. At salvation, something was done for us, and now Jesus' sacrifice exerts some kind of moral expectation on us. So we make active choices for the good. Peter says, love each other, show hospitality to one another, serve others. Our goodness is lived out, it's tested, in the arena of our personal relationships. Anyone can be a saint in the privacy of his or her bedroom. It's up close and personal that it gets a little bit more tricky. And what we learn from this passage about living out goodness is three things. Peter focuses on loving, hosting, and serving. So let's start with loving. The apologist Fulton Sheen said, it doesn't need much time to make sense. It only takes much love. Much love given from our hearts. Peter says here to his readers, love each other deeply. And that word deeply in the Greek, it means at full stretch. It means like the outstretched legs of a galloping horse. In other words, live and love to the full, at full tilt, to the hilt, does your love operate at full horsepower? Peter's saying it should. Now it's easy to love those that we're instinctively drawn to, isn't it? But what about when it's a little bit more challenging with people who we find difficult? That requires more love from us, more energy, more commitment. And how do we love a person? that we find difficult? Well, sometimes we need to give permission to one another to to just be as we are in all our brokenness, without feeling the need to try and change one another, because it's the Holy Spirit's work to change us and to change one another. Sometimes it's the people who stretch us most, who if we can meet them with grace, stretch our hearts open, a little bit further. I don't always get it right. I remember a time in my life when I wrote a letter to an older leader who I'd served under in one of my first jobs in theatre. And um, I'd found this man incredibly irritating and aggravating. His words, his manner, his actions, they all kind of just got under my skin. And it was about 10 years later that I realised, oh, hold on. He's triggering feelings in me from another unresolved relationship in my life. This has nothing to do with him at all. And so I felt very convicted and I thought I'd write him a letter. And I wrote him a, a letter apologizing for some of my unhelpful behavior when I'd been working for him. And by the grace of God, he wrote back such a kind, loving, generous, forgiving response, which was amazing to receive. But it meant even more when I opened a newspaper three months later and saw a photo next to his obituary. He died very suddenly of an aggressive cancer. Peter says, love covers over a multitude of sins. And this man's love had covered over a multitude of my sins. Jesus' love covers over a canvas of our sins. And so we're called to love each other, even when we offend each other, we're called to love each other unconditionally. If you want a fail-safe mantra, a kind of idiot's guide to being holy, according to Peter, it's this, love each other deeply. So that's love, and then hosting. Peter urges, offer hospitality to one another, without grumbling. In the Bible, hosting always speaks of the human heart as well as the home. So if Jesus says we're to host those who can't repay our hospitality, not those who can then who should we invite into our hearts? Simply those who are like us? Simply those who mirror us back? Simply those who affirm us in our identity, in our roles? Or should we be inviting into our heart the very people that stretched Jesus' heart. And is our hospitality sincere, or is there a kind of closet grumbler lurking within us? Do we somehow resent when other people leave a muddy footprint on the carpet of our hearts? It would just be so much easier if so-and-so wasn't in my life. Peter says, love and host generously. And then he says, serve others, serving. Now again, this is about both the posture of the heart and who we're called to serve, who we're called to kneel to in a way, to bless. You may remember right after um, Pope Francis was elected Pope, almost immediately, I think it was the next day, he went to a juvenile prison in Rome and he washed the feet of 12 young prisoners. He wanted to say to them, Ah, I may be Pope, but actually you're my brothers and sisters. You're the ones I'm called to serve. Whose metaphorical feet am I washing in my life at present? So loving, hosting, serving. This is how we stay close to Jesus, putting others before ourselves, preferring the other. And of course, we often fail in these things. We fail again and again, and we shouldn't think hard on ourselves when we do. A monk was asked, what exactly do you do at that monastery of yours? And he said, we fall and get up, fall and get up, fall and get up again. That's the Christian life. And this is why Peter stresses the help that God wants to give us. He says, we serve others with whatever gift God gives us. He says we're given in the Bible the very words of God to guide our speech. He says we help others with the strength God provides. God gives us the strength through the Holy Spirit. And we say that the Holy Spirit sanctifies. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is in the business of saint-making. The Holy Spirit moves around looking for how he can bring transformation in our lives, especially when we stumble and we fall. Thomas Merton, the American monk said, I who am without love cannot become love unless love identifies me with himself. But if he sends his own love himself to act and love in me and in all that I do, then I shall be transformed. And that is what God does through sending the Holy Spirit to live within us so that we can be and do good and this is why Peter says that we become saints we become holy only through receiving the mercy of God at Calvary you can't divorce holiness and mercy imagine a world of holiness without mercy it's a terrible thought we'd feel called to a very very high bar the whole time and we'd feel locked in condemnation every time we failed But conversely, think of a world of mercy without holiness, equally awful. We'd be wrapped in a warm blanket every time we messed up, but we'd never be inspired to stretch for the stars when it comes to the moral good. No, the New Testament writers do two things. They call us to a heroic ideal to become the very best versions of ourselves, and they proclaim the infinite mercy of God. Every time we mess up, the second time, the third time, the 300th time, there's always grace. So if you're scratching your head tonight and just feeling not quite so good about something you've done, something you've said, know that the mercy of God is here waiting to be poured out to you again. Peter actually says it's much better to be weak and to call on God's help rather than trying to do things out of our own strength. So then you might ask, if God helps us, why does living a good life still not always feel easy? And Peter urges his readers as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He's saying that living a goodly, godly life is tough because we live in a battle We live tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sin can offer a very easy path of least resistance. And it takes something to be able to say no. Some of us tonight might be struggling with kind of quite obvious, particular sins. Ways that we've spoken in the last week, things that we've looked at that we shouldn't. But for some of us, it's gonna be much subtler We actually might have been growing spiritually, growing in the Christian life, doing quite well recently. And the enemy's come in and he's just turned our heart so that we've become a little bit judgmental of others who are not doing quite so well. So a little bit like the cigarette addict who suddenly gets clean and wants everybody else to know about it. When that happens, the saint in us becomes sanctimonious and we know the bad smell that, that gives off. Living a holy life, according to Peter, involves a certain maturity because sin brings instant gratification but long term ruin. Holiness may involve short term cost but it finally yields joy. And so, the only way, the only thing we need to kind of wrestle with in our mind and resolve is which long term fruit we want. Is it ruin? or is it joy? So our holiness is positional, it's personal, and finally, it is persuasive. Peter's writing to Christians here who are being accused of everything under the sun. Child sacrifice, cannibalism, through taking bread and wine at communion, and disloyalty to Caesar. And yet, these Christians are captivating people with acts of kindness and love and generosity. So what does this tell us? It tells us this, resist the desires of this world and you become irresistible to the world. When Peter says live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds, the word he uses for good, kalos, it means beautiful. It means winsome, it means contagiously attractive. In other words, a morally good life is persuasive because it flows out of a joy in Jesus Christ. Without this joy, our goodness lacks credibility. In his early 20s, Thomas Merton spent time with a Hindu holy man in New York, and he was so touched by this holy man's saintliness and some bad experiences he'd had with Christians that Merton wrote this, the Hindus aren't looking for us to send them men and women who will build schools and hospitals although those things are good and useful in themselves, they want to know if we have any saints to send them. That's what they care about. Our world needs saints. What does a simple stand for goodness look like in our world? In 2008, I interviewed uh, a guy called Francis Collins in the USA. He was director of the Human Genome Project at the time, which was sequencing uh, the entire uh, DNA stream across the globe. And shortly after, I had the good fortune to interview him. Collins got into a... He went to a debate um, on science and faith between uh, another Christian and Christopher Hitchens. If you don't know Christopher Hitchens... He's a raging bull of an atheist, wrote a book called God Is Not Great. And Collins put his hand up at one point and asked a question of Hitchens. And Hitchens dismissed him as a simpleton. Said, you're a simpleton because you're a Christian. Now, a few years later, Hitchens developed cancer of the esophagus. And Collins, as a medic, reached out to him and said, "Uh, I know a certain amount about the latest gene therapy. Could I come and talk to you and see if we can do anything for your particular cancer? And the men met, and Collins struck up an unlikely friendship with the vociferous atheist Hitchens. Hitchens became so taken by Collins that Collins became a kind of chaplain to him while he was dying, and shortly before he died, Hitchens called Collins, in print, the best of the faithful, a great humanitarian, and one of the greatest living Americans. At Hitchens' memorial service after his death at a magazine called Vanity Fair, for which he wrote, Collins was given the stage to speak a little bit about his friendship with Christopher Hitchens. He did that briefly. Then he went over to a grand piano, sat down, and he played a sonata that he'd composed in honour of his atheist friend. He did that before an audience of... Hostile friends of Hitchens who were no friends to the Christian faith. But can you imagine the witness of it as he played that beautiful melody for Hitchens, his atheist friend? The saints of today won't look like the saints of yesterday. They won't necessarily wear monks' robes and nuns' robes. There'll be new saints with new gifts living good lives in response to the challenges of this age. They'll dress like you and like me. And this is what we're called to, to do something simple like that man Collins did, reaching out in friendship across a tribal divide. So where in your life could your good and beautiful deeds have impact this week? in your halls, in your workplaces, amongst your families, where through resting in the goodness of God, you can show something of the irresistible face of Jesus Christ to others. In his name we pray, amen.